Paul Ryan, who you can't hear because he hasn't got a microphone, uh, but he's witnessing this great event. Uh, <laughs> and on the line, we've got Jim Clifford. Jim, are you there? Hey. hey. Yeah, no, no, no. So, wait, is that Paulie Ryan? Paulie? Yeah. Yeah, Paulie Ryan. Hey. Yeah, he's yeah. here. waving oh, hello. He man, showed it's up. It's been a long time. <laughs> he said, it's been yeah, a long yeah. time, Paul. <laughs> Paul misses you, it's Jim. Been a lonely, 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 long time. <laughs> Polly, great. What the hell is he doing there? Well, Jesus. he walked by last week, and we told him that you were going to be here this week, and so he said, I'm going to come by and see Jim. Uh, but well, uh, you know, Here I am. <laughs> yeah, here he is. Right? Here in this little phone of Can mine. you put your phone on speakerphone and sit it here? And uh, that way Paul would be able to hear Jim. No, it's going through Bluetooth into this oh, gotcha. mixer. So, it's a hairy world. Damn. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, exactly. God dang it. Okay, so there's Dave, Kristen, Pablo. Holly, yes. And, and Pablo. Okay. Yeah, and Jim, and I'm not sure. Got a handful. Yeah, I'm sure we've met at some point, but I don't think we've met met. So, I, I'm not putting a a face and a body to a name, but uh, Dave and Kristen mention you almost daily. <laughs> yes. Uh, I look a lot like uh, Schwarzenegger. Yeah, that's what I'd, <laughs> I'd imagine. If you want to, you know, put an image to me, that'll work. Good. Yeah, <laughs> Good. he is He is pretty cut. I'm bumping. So we're sitting oh here, you know, God. often when I come to this park, uh, Seven Pools Park, I hear, uh, or uh, in my head, stories. I, I think you told me that you uh, used to come here, and maybe I don't want to incriminate you too much, but uh, I think, didn't you come here and do acid uh, as a youth? <laughs> you know, uh, a good friend of mine lives, well, John Pohl, lives, he used to call it Pohl Park. Yeah, so we go there and, you know, basically kill mosquitoes because that was, you know, what you have to do when you're there. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I romped around and did all sorts of things. That was a great, I mean, that's a great location. It's a, it's a classic. And my great-grandfather lived a block from there. So, you know, Poles, Seven Pools. Yeah, Poles Park. It was amazing when you said this is where you were meeting. I went, you know, that is, that's great. Perfect. Although, you know, they when they ripped down all the bushes, it used to be much more um, hidden where those pools are. Everything was surrounded by bushes. It was really cool. It was very uh, Lord of the Flies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, now it, it's, uh, they. I think they, a woman came by the other day and said that um, the pools need to be rehabbed and it's going to cost, what, three quarters of a million dollars <laughs> to do the, the pools. Yeah, there we go. Um, <laughs> so they're doing a, a big fundraiser. It's called, did you know that it's called Thomas Lowry Park? Uh, you know, um, I guess that makes sense. Um, Whoever that sure. is. Probably your grandpa. Although, your wasn't, great -grandpa he, wasn't he a racist? And, uh, you know, <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm sure he was. Going yeah. down, baby. <laughs> so just to audio describe for our Paul Ryans, Jim was just describing yeah. his history with the park. <laughs> yeah, his, gran he's, his great grandfather <laughs> lived right down the street here. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I mean, I, yeah, that that park is fantastic. 
Um, so I, you know, it's kind of fun because um, when Dave asked me to, you know, come and hang out with you guys and talk about the old New York days, I was last night I was thinking about it, and uh, you know, I guess it was maybe two or three years ago. Uh, my good friend Peter Shimsky, who's unfortunately uh, left us now, but he was teaching at, at McNally Smith, and he was teaching a punk rock class. He's a keyboard player, fantastic. And uh, he asked me to come in and do a uh, and do a class with his. I think there were five students, and tell them about punk rock in New York City in 1975. So, you know, I gathered all this material together and went in um, through his class, and the kids were so cool. Now they're all you know excellent. They were making their own little punk rock bands and stuff. And this is maybe four years ago. I mean, so here we are, twenty. 16 or 2015 or something and uh, it's kind of incredible how uh, certain things get codified and turned into sort of mythical status and there I was just as a 20 year old going out to New York City because I had a friend in a band that was in CBGB's and he wanted me to be in the band and was that the marbles uh, when I was, yeah it was marbles no the oh, okay marbles <laughs> yeah. okay you know, really irritating. You know, anything we can do to irritate. Uh, That's so punk yeah, so rock was, of you. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, except, you know, we were sort of a, a square peg in a round hole. We did, I mean, we were the least punk of any band at CBGB's. We were like four-part harmonies and, uh, you know, pretty sophisticated arrangements and all this kind of stuff. But... We were young kids, and I mean, basically, the punk is, you're, you know, I'm thinking, okay, when I went out to New York City, when you're that age, 20, I remember lying in my bed when I was in college, and I was totally in love with this girl, and, uh, you know, she had, I don't know, and she was in Minneapolis, and I was in Chicago, and I remember just lying in bed and staring at the ceiling for, like, hours, all the time, you know, and so... That, that when you're that old, there's all this yearning. You're just full of yearning, you know. And so, going out to New York City and being in a band—I mean, I was so great because I graduated from college, and my parents drove down my amplifier and my bass guitar, and I threw it in a U-Haul trailer and drove to New York City in, in uh, June of 1975. And it was great because I immediately was staying in a five floor walk up apartment on Bleecker Street in the West Village with this French woman named Gamette Barbet. Who was of course you were. Of, of course you were. <laughs> Dude. Oh man. Jimmy, and, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy. So Jim, I, I have to say I, Yeah, go on. Yeah. <laughs> so there I am, like the first night out there, sleeping, you know, it's hotter than hell. And I'm sleeping on the couch, and I'm in my, like, boxer shorts. And in the middle of the night, all of a sudden, going on. And I wake up, and there's a fly, a big, fat fucking fly flying all around <laughs> and landing. I'm going, holy shit. So I'm up. And I actually kind of had a reputation as a kid of being a good fly killer. So... I was, you know, I grabbed the newspaper, rolled it up, and I'm running around in the living room in this, you know, five-story walk-up uh, railroad-style apartment in New York City, 
smashing things, trying to kill the flies. <laughs> and then finally, Gamette comes out of her bedroom. It's like four in the morning or something. And she goes, and you know, she turns on the light, and I am like standing on a chair in boxer shorts, and she's like, "What? What are you doing? What's going on?" And I, <laughs> so uh, I mean, it was, it was. Yeah. That was my introduction to New York City, flies and Bleecker Street, <laughs> moving, moving a piano up to the, actually, and the, the Boulder Brothers, who are the drummer and guitar and guitarist in the band, they lived on the seventh floor of that same building. It's a oh walk-up. my God. Wow. So, wait, Bleecker and what, in, Jimmy? Bleecker and what? Let's Bleecker between uh, uh, McDougal and, uh, no, it wasn't on Bleecker, it was on McDougal Street oh. between Bleecker and 4th Street. Oh, right there. Man. I mean, right in the, that is I mean, prime. Was, you so were the, right by CBGB. Yeah, it's a block from, well, not too far, but it was all the way down Bowery. So, you know, maybe about a mile. Five, yeah. At least a 10 block walk. Jimmy, but, was uh, that? Know, uh, Washington Square Park or right there. I mean, it was just the epicenter, you know. Jimmy, what was the band that you were in in high school? What was the name of your very first band before the Marbles? <laughs> it's not the Marbles. Well, my very first band, oh, yeah. not the Noda. Um, yeah, sorry about that. Um, the first band I was in, you know, my brother had a huge effect on me, influence on me in my life. He was a year and a half older. He was he a was drummer, in right? Grade. He got a, yeah, he got a snare drum and a hi-hat. And so he would be playing in his bedroom along to Liar Liar Pants on Fire, which was actually a great drum part. Oh, and yeah. uh, he, you know, he was playing with his friend Tom Weaver in a band and he said, Jim, you've got to learn how to play the bass guitar. I didn't even know what the bass, I, I played piano. You know, I didn't even know what the bass guitar was. And what, are you in Are down. you in seventh grade at that time? What grade Well, are yeah, you? I'm in seventh grade at that time. <laughs> I'm in seventh grade. Oh, yes. And, uh, you know, I got a paper, I had a paper on it, saved up my money, and I ended up, I remember him, you know, we'd be sitting there on the, the little, you know, those little portable 45 record players, I mean, um, and we'd be listening to like uh, whatever, Rubber Soul, and we keep going. Yeah, don't you hear the bass there? Can you hear it? And I go, where? You know, <laughs> the bass was so mixed back, you know, in the mix you couldn't even hear it. So he really taught me how to even hear the bass guitar. And then, uh, then I got my Fender Precision bass and my uh, Supro Thunderbolt amp at uh, Raleigh Music. And then I took my first bass lesson, went there, and it was these tiny little cubicles. You know, I, I don't get changed too much, even these days. Where was it? Was it at Schmidt? Uh, it was on Excelsior. No, I went to, on Excelsior Boulevard. Uh, what was the name of it? It was, kind of a, it was a little music store that sold equipment. It was kind of by where Trader Joe's is now. It was completely different back then. Gotcha. There's no big apartment buildings or anything. Um, but it's still very strip molly like and uh, um, so I went to take a bass lesson. It's like a half hour lesson, and there are these little like plywood, you know, sort of like biffy, you know, <laughs> sort of biffy kind of plywood, you know, rooms and crappy doors. And I went in, and I said, the guy says, "Well, what do you want to do?" I said, "I want to learn Gloria. You know, it has three chords, and I want to learn how to play that on the bass." So basically, he taught me how to play Gloria, and then I left. Can and you give us night, a little flavor a... of that, Gloria? Just give us a little. <laughs> we all know that song. Ba 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 Gloria, I'm gonna shout all night. Gloria, gonna shout at every place. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So oh, good. Man. All right. You know, there it is. Chatter That's the awesome. night. You know, <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you for that, Jimmy. But then there's a ba 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 It's three chords. Yeah, that's it, Dave. That's the ending. Oh my god. It's a great it's one of the great songs of all time. Yeah. Anyway, um so that night I get a phone call and uh this guy and he goes, Hi, is this Jim Clifford? And I go, Uh huh. He goes, uh, my name's Doug Spankerud and uh you know, I was I was at uh uh Raleigh's music today and I heard your playing the bass during your bass lesson. I said, really? He goes, yeah, and uh, we want to know if you want to be in our band. <laughs> I said, uh, well, you know, I think there's something you should know about me. First of all, that was I'm my first in eighth lesson. grade. <laughs> I'm only five feet tall, and it was my first lesson. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. It's rock and roll. All right. Hey, hey, he goes, hey. well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you, did you play a yeah, gig with I'm him listening. then? Did you join his band? Well, yeah. So he said, well, you know, we need a bass player and we got a gig in two weeks. And uh, it's at the Golden Valley High School uh, Carnival. Um, and so uh, you want to come and, and be in the band? I said, well, okay, sure. But, you know, I'm in eighth grade and I'm only five feet tall. He goes, well, we're in ninth grade, so that's all right. You know, oh you're fine. God. Don't worry about it. I love it. <laughs> I love it. So I went so, to a practice. Yeah. And, oh, and these guys, yeah. Do you have a question? Oh, oh yeah, no, yeah. No, no, no. Go, continue with the story because I, I, I want to uh, get okay. the connective, t- connective tissue between this moment and Blondie. You know, like being able, meeting uh, the Ramones and David <laughs> Byrne and all that kind of stuff. It's like, all the same. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. We'll get that. We'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> okay, catapult yeah. from this. I mean, we're going to catapult. But anyway, but this is actually kind of important because this is the basis of my entire life. No right pun here. intended. Okay, so, okay, I went and had a rehearsal with these guys and they played all these. I mean, my brother and I, we were just like these English rock, you know, the Who, Happy Jack, Small Faces, you know, It's Food Park, all this kind of, you know, English invasion music. Well, these guys didn't play any of that stuff. They played like Otis Redding, all these R&B, like, and these songs all had great bass lines, you know, but I, you know, two weeks for the gig and they have like a set list of like 40 <laughs> songs. And oh my I had God. no idea how to do any of this stuff. And uh, so they go, don't worry, don't worry, you're going to be great. You know, I said, okay, great. So we show up at the high school, you know, those carnival things, they like last all day in every room, like there's a bake sale. Another one, you, you know, you go in and, you know, see the stamp collection or whatever. Well, this was the, you know, rock band room. And we were there for like, something like four hours. And there were like blinking <laughs> colored lights. And it was just got, I mean, it was all, you know, uh, linoleum surfaces and complete echo chamber. And there we were, we set up and uh, I just completely turned off the volume. You know, I completely faked it. There was no volume whatsoever <laughs> coming out of the bass guitar. And all day long, people were coming up to me and saying how great I was, how great it sounded. That is the most punk rock thing I've ever heard. That was wow. awesome, Jimmy. So the the lesson is fake it till you make it, huh? Just that you know you what that you know it could be, it could be, it, or or it, nothing matters whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Wow. So. 
I mean, or, so that, that definitely colors my uh, uh, realization of what you have to do to make it in the music business. Basically, it's showing up, I guess. Yeah, you Woody know? Allen, yeah. And that that's it. And, you know, to catapult to New York, I showed up. I mean, uh, uh, and then in high school, so I was played, so that was the first band. Then I was uh, played, finally got in a band with my brother and Tom Weaver. We were a power trio. And we were, uh, you know, we did all these, like, Jimi Hendrix, Fire, and, you know, all these sweet songs. And uh, Actually, it was a great set. It was great material. What was and the Tom name Weaver of that project? What was that uh, name? We were called The Benign. Like, you know, a Good one. name. That's a great Benign, name. That's, yeah, that's uh, kind of heavy metal. Uh, you know, Tom, Tom would be like, um, I mean, he'd light his guitar on fire. He had a bow he could play. I mean, we did Led Zeppelin stuff too. This was in '69, now '68. So, um, well, we started, I guess, probably '69. So I think Led Zeppelin stuff. But he, he had a bow, so he could do all the bowing stuff, like uh, Jimmy Page and and uh, and George played drums, and he had you know double bass, you know, drum kit, and uh, you know, at that time it was really in vogue to do drum solos. Like, you know, Ginger Baker Toad on, on Cream's album, you know, did like a big yeah. on drum solo. So, uh, you know, they're the most boring fucking things in the world. And I remember <laughs> playing at this, we played like these church undercrofts and stuff, you know, really weird gigs. And um, I remember, you know, George's drum solo was so incredibly boring and it went on for like 10 minutes. So uh, <laughs> Tom and I dressed up in like white flight suits and then we, had black lights in front of the stage so during his solo he turned off all the lights and just had black lights with us in our flight suits and then we had um, fluorescent spray can paint and we'd get in fight we'd get in a fight in front of George's drum set and be spraying each other with fluorescent <laughs> paint to try to uh, entertain the audience while this <laughs> god awful drum solo was going on for eternity <laughs> How was George with that? Was he he cool with the, the theatrics? He was totally cool. He doesn't care. He's playing drums, making noise. He's a fucking drummer. You know, <laughs> Jesus, he's in shit heaven, you know. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. He got all the attention, but, you know, we needed it, too. So, so we were, you know, so I guess I was honing my punk edge for the, you know, arrival. And then, yeah, right. And then, uh, and then to sort of tie up my high school uh, music experience then, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, I was hanging out. Actually, 11th and 12th grade, started doing a lot of jamming, you know, with friends. And I was good friends with a guy named Duncan Hanna, who played drums. And the amazing painter. And, and a very, and an excellent painter. Yeah. And uh, we would jam with all these guys, like Steve Kramer, my friend, and Steve Brooks. We played with them all the time. We had a band called the Hurricane Boys. And we'd just show up and play for, like, three hours straight, just jamming, you know. Um, that ended up going into college, and we got a we got a grant. Steve Brooks was at Bennington College. I was at Lake Forest. And for one term, they gave us the chapel at Lake Forest College. We could we set up our equipment in there. It was a beautiful old chapel from you know before the turn of the 20th century. Gorgeous, and we were in there every day, and we we played like eight hours a day. And we had a uh, then they sent us out to Bennington College for this really sort of avant-garde, famous uh, trumpet player, Bill Dixon was our, um, was our mentor. And we did a concert 
that lasted 12 hours. It was all night long. Wow. Holy cow. <laughs> Those kids at Bennington really know how to have a good what? time. So, it's, and you were just jamming for 12 hours, just making noise? Yeah. I mean, that's what, yeah. Because I mean, Steve, Steve Kramer and Steve Brooks, that's all they did. They would sit down and they would just start playing together. They were incredible. Man. I didn't even know that Steve, is this the Steve Brooks that I've met at some of the yeah. Meteor Boys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't even know he was a musician. Huh. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's kind of not, he doesn't play much at all anymore. It's really too bad because he's really good. Um, and, he, and he and Steve were just uh, incredible together. I mean, they were just, they could just riff on anything. Huh. And uh, I didn't have any clue what I was doing, but I, I would just show up and, uh, you know, jamming you go on and on and on and then every once in a while everything lines up and it's spectacular and so we were you know basically experimenting it was really cool and then i, I we jammed with another guy eric lee in high school he was going to hopkins a uh, chinese american guy here all the way down to his ass you know one of the friendliest coolest guys ever and then when i was in college came back for christmas senior year I ran into him at a, uh, he was going to Columbia University. He was a classical pianist. And he said, Jim, I've started this band. We're playing at this tiny little club called CBGB's. And uh, I really want you to come out and be the bass player. So this was Christmas, uh, New Year's Eve, so 1974 to the year 1975. And I told God, you know, I've got to finish college, but I'll come out and check you guys out at spring break. And he said, he goes, well, I have a tape. I'll send you out a tape of some of our songs. So um, I went out there spring break, and that was that was incredible to go to to go to uh, Manhattan in spring break, and the city was just grotesque, dirty. I mean, it was just. I remember walking on the streets at at night, and it's all this yellowish light. All the street lights were yellow, so it made everything look tawdry and you know, and, and basically like uh, liver disease. <laughs> and I remember going down this street at like two in the morning and there's this kid, he couldn't have been more than like six years old. And he was rummaging around in a garbage bin. As I'm, and I had a camera. He was walking, I was walking down the street and he looks at me and he lifts this severed doll head. It was almost life-size out of the garbage bin. It's just he's covered with dirt. The whole thing's like covered with... It's, it's, I took a photo. I have it somewhere. I mean, it's just... I, I think I put it in my college yearbook, actually, because I was the editor of the yearbook. That <laughs> oh, time. my goodness. And it's just like... It was so fucking down and out in New York, but that was the great thing. Everything was on the street in front of you. I mean, nothing was hidden. The city was going bankrupt. I mean, there was uh, sex everywhere of all kinds, and it was all safe because this was before AIDS. You know, what I mean, I mean, it, it, there was no crack cocaine. It was all, you know, cocaine and the Zola parties, and I mean, it was it was the <laughs> wildest place Bazola. ever. And it was cheap. I mean, Manhattan, you know. Uh, artists were living in Manhattan. I mean, it was uh, it was spectacular. So I went to CBGB's, and there was Marbles, and they were playing with the Ramones, which they did every Monday night. And there I am at the show. And uh, these are two very different bands. You know, Marbles are really melodic and, like I said, four-part harmonies and, and uh, really pop, you know, great melodies, great tunes. Uh, and then, and then the Ramones, which are you know, uh, which were which were amazing, but 
at that point for me, it was like, who the fuck are they? What? (laughs) (laughs) You know, they were kind of outside my realm of even understanding, really. And, you know, they did like a 20-minute set that was incredibly loud, and then they were done. It was all the same songs. Were those guys older than you, Jim, or about the same age? Uh, You know, I've been thinking about that, and they were probably... You know, I'm not sure. They're probably about the same age. Maybe been a little older. I was pretty young, you know, 20. Um, so, I, was I 21? Was that 70? Yeah, I guess I was 21. When I, was um, uh, yeah, I was 21. So I turned 22 that fall. Okay. Um, yeah, so they, they might have been a little older, but I was thinking, I was thinking about what were the other people like in the music scene? And it was a pretty wide swath of of people. It was a yeah. very small, incredibly small scene when I first went out there. It was just Sunday night was Patti Smith and television. Monday night was Ramones and Marbles. And that, I mean, and there was like a couple other bands and that was it. I mean, there was nothing. Blondie hadn't, re- I mean, they were just starting. But the whole thing was very, very much at the beginning. This is uh, beginning of, you know, 1975. And then I'm, went out there beginning in June, and at this point, there had already been a number of newspaper articles written about this scene, but not, not the New York Times, but little like New York Rocker and the, and the Village uh, um, the Soho News. These are little like local rags in, in Manhattan. And that, it was already getting quite a lot of, uh, uh, of press, as was Marbles, even before I was in the band. They were already flashed all over these, these uh, newspapers. So... I get out there, I'm immediately, you know, I have a couple rehearsals with the Bowler Brothers and Eric Lee. So Eric Lee went to Columbia University. His roommate was Dave Bowler, who's a spectacular drummer. And Dave had a brother, Howard, who played guitar, and they started this band. And they had a bass player, but they didn't really care for him. So I came out and uh, became the bass player. And they already, you know, they had gigs at CBGBs. I went out, learned the songs had a couple rehearsals and there I was on stage in this scene that was very, very extremely small, but really great because all of a sudden I was hooked into something immediately. I didn't have to go out there and try to get to know anybody. I was, I went out there and I just fit right in to this scene. I was hooked into it. Not that I fit in all that well. I mean, I was a Minneapolis kid um, that loved classical music and when I went out to New York City, I was you know, I, I, you know, I, I was a huge classical music fan. I went and saw the ballet all the time. I saw Vladimir Horowitz twice play. Um, one of the most, I mean, he's probably the most extraordinary famous of all time. And, uh, you know, went to the opera, saw Pavarotti. It was an incredible time to be in, in New York City. There were so many stars and, and people there. It was very accessible. Um, and so... The bands at CBGBs, you got guys like the Ramones who are, you know, uh, they're much more, I mean, from what I know, I didn't know them all that well. I didn't hang out with the Ramones. I mean, I saw them and knew who I was. Um, Tommy Ramone is a pretty nice guy. But like D.D. Ramone, I might have been two words to my whole life. <laughs> um, uh, but I mean, those guys, I mean, then you have those guys, they're from like Long Island and they're these guys with the accent like this and, you know, they, they were different on a sort of different, they came from a totally different, uh, background. Then you had gone, then Talking Heads showed up. So then you got 
you know, other sort of, you know, like, you know college educated uh, people. And of course, Patty Smith, brilliant. Tom Verlaine from uh, um, television. I mean, he was named after a poet, for God's sake. He was very well read, fantastic guitarist. And, you know, Richard Hill. So you got, you got these writers and people who are aware of a larger artistic environment. And then you've got, you know, you sort of blue collar, you know, kick ass rock and roll people, Ramones, the dictators. I mean, um, what about like, um, Iggy Pop? Did you ever, was Iggy Pop part of that whole thing or? No, Iggy Pop was not part of the punk scene at all. But, um, because he was way too big, he was famous. All these people weren't famous. I mean, so Iggy Pop, you know, already had, you know, was doing touring of the country and the world. I mean, he got famous like 71, 72 in there. Oh, okay. so this is 75. Um, but uh, one of the guys, uh, one of Duncan's good friends from Bard College, who I, I met, great guy, Rob Dupre, fantastic guitarist. So I knew him pretty well. He was playing in a group called The Mumps, which was Lance Loud's band. So, Jimmy, I, American family. I have to interject. Um, I just texted sure. Rob. Rob is my brother-in-law. I just texted him and told him we were chatting, and he says hi. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the small Who is this? world. Rob Who is your, Dupre. This is Rob Dupre. The guy he's talking about is my my brother-in-law. And, oh, uh, really? You're shitting is, me. No, I, I told these guys this story. So I was in New York not too long ago, and Kristen and Dave had been saying your name every other week we're fond and uh and i and they <laughs> told me you know that you you were part of that scene and i was like god oh, geez i wonder if he knows you know my brother-in-law and then i was out in new york with rob last year and he was like yeah my friend jimmy clifford who lives in <laughs> blah, blah, blah. and i was like son of a bitch i gotta meet this guy <laughs> and you still have to meet him yeah i still have to meet you so anyway i texted him while you while we were chatting here and he says hi <laughs> oh that's so great jimmy Super how long were you cool. out well, there how long were you out in uh, new was, york city i was out there from 75 to 1982 so seven years which is in New York years, that's like 150 years. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's way beyond dog years. You know what I mean? Like, to be out there seven years and to survive, is, is, is especially during those times. Yeah, and you didn't young. all survive, right? I mean, what happened to... Uh, Fuck, no, no, most of my friends are dead. I mean, actually, yeah. I mean, my good friend Eric Lee died, drug overdose. Many people, I, I worked in a restaurant, I was a waiter, you know, most of the guys at the restaurant were gay, really good friends of mine, fabulous, they're all gone. I mean, the photographer, many photographers, like, so, okay, Marbles, we were this sort of uh, cherubic, you know, these four guys, uh, you know, all kind of handsome, um, you know, the, so the, the, um, the gay community was all over it. So, for instance, Kristen sister boo lived out in manhattan well she still lives out in new york City. yeah but, she um, does she says uh, hi by the in, way uh, awesome back in the i don't know when she was out there the first time she was living ab- above some chinese restaurant or yeah something she was down in uh, chinatown living in one of those amazing <laughs> cut-ups where the lofts are everybody's got like a 10 by 7 little <laughs> space yeah did you visit her out there no but she was so cool she said jim i i um went to an, into a bookstore and I was looking at books and I found this book and 
book. I'm looking through it, and there you are in the book. And I said, well, <laughs> what book is it? And she goes, well, it's uh, it's an autobiography by this guy, Wayne County, and it's called Man Enough to Be a Woman. That's and right. Wayne County was a, a big trans, I mean, uh, transsexual uh, guy. He was, had a big, I mean, we, we played with him. We played at, the, at Club 82, which was a sort of, uh, trans transvestite 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 bar in the Lower East Side um, a number of times and he was a huge fan um, and so I mean this fucking book uh, there are like four pictures of me in his book <laughs> Man Enough to Be a Woman and who awesome. bought me a so copy great. and That's sent so it cool. to me it was so incredible <laughs> <laughs> like a Man Enough to Be a Woman anyway, did you did you ever play at the Limelight did you do anything down there at the limelight, uh, the, the limelight was that was after this oh, okay. whole scene. The yeah. limelight used to have a different name. Um, I think it was called uh, shit. What was the name of it? Just, uh, fuck, I can't remember what it was called before limelight. Uh, we played. You know, at the very beginning, there were only two clubs. It was CBGBs and Max's. That was the only two clubs that would Max's Kansas sign, City or not sign, but that the original bands could play. You know, that was it. Which was great because then you have a very low, and it was continued that way for at least a year and a half, two years. And it's a very the first year is incredible, like maybe forty people, you know, in all as far as band members at the most. You know, at the beginning, there's like that, those are the people that would be in the audience. I mean, so yeah, Debbie Harry, who was Blondie, um, you know, Richard Hell. All, every, everyone would show up at every gig because that that's where we all went. So you'd all go to see the TVs and see whoever was playing, or the Miamis or, uh, you know, Tough Starts or, uh, you know, whoever. Jim, um, I'm, oh, I'm curious. Yeah. At, at what point did you realize that you were part of a, a scene that was fast gaining recognition and sort of national attention. Did it ever occur to you? Did you know it in retrospect? Did you know it at the time? I knew it at the time. When I went out there, I already knew it because Eric had sent me all these newspaper articles. And, you know, um, uh, seeing yourself in print, I wasn't in the band then, but just reading about these different bands in print, in newspapers, gave it a validity. And when I went out there and I was in the van for a month and a half and we played a couple of gigs at CBGB's, our manager was a guy named Alan Betrock, who was the publisher of New York Rocker. And uh, after like a month and a half, Women's Wear Daily is a huge fashion uh, magazine. New yeah. York City is very important. Um, Women's Wear Daily came out in the entire back page of Women's Wear Daily. You know, not the back page of the section, the entire back page of the whole, the whole uh, newspaper was an article about Marvel with a fantastic photo of us and saying that we were like the greatest thing on the fucking planet. That's awesome. And <laughs> just like, going, oh my fucking, I mean, it was, it was insane. Um, so, and I, you know, any band I'm in, Dave, um, <laughs> I totally believe in, because I mean, that's, what else are you going to do? You know, I mean, uh, you're doing something, you're doing what you want, it, it, it's right, and I'm with guys that you're all sort of on the same page. It was really, really fun. And, uh, and unfortunately, um, uh, 
I mean, I wish I could have been a little more um, open-minded. You know, my, I got to blame my brother here, like I said, it was a huge influence. He was also extremely critical of everything on the planet as well. Mm. So I did pick up a little bit of that. And what sort of was really rough for Marvel, because like I said, we we're kind of a, we were a little bit different because we we're so pop, even though we were pop. I mean, so I, I went out there. I'd never written a song before. And, you know, Eric Lee, just like, a, I can't even tell you how beautiful this guy was. Um, he's so inclusive. He goes, hey, Jim, you know what? I really want, let's get you, I've got a couple songs I want you to sing, um, but you need to write a song. He goes, you know what? I've, I've started this tune and uh, let's do it together. I said, oh, what the fuck? You know, he goes, well, um, you know, let's just sit down and, and uh, let's just start doing shit. And he was an incredible keyboard player. He was spectacular. So I was working at Brentano's bookstore on 48th Street and 5th Avenue. I was getting $3.23 an hour. And uh, they all just, I was in the cookbook section. It was pretty cool because uh, I'd show up at work and one day there was like a line of women in black leather dresses all the way down the block. <laughs> and uh, I was going, what the fuck's going on? And it was Johnny Cash selling his autobiography. And I'm going, holy shit. <laughs> Another day I showed up was Andy Warhol selling his autobiography. And a lot of times I was the cashier right next to these you know, superstars. It was amazing. It was an incredible place. Um, but anyway, uh, they decided to all go on strike because we were teamsters, believe it or not, because it was about the truckers that deliver the books and we were all teamsters. And <laughs> they decided to go on strike. And I got really taken up in it and I went to the strike meetings and I was so blown away by the strike leaders. These guys would get up and they would incite the crowd and after 20 minutes I'm screaming, you know, <laughs> fuck the man, I need more money. I mean, it was, it was spectacular. So, I, so I'm sitting there with Eric Lee um, telling him about these, these union meetings and I started writing lyrics, we started writing lyrics about, uh, the union guy, and we came up with a song called Listen to the Kid. We changed it around a little bit because the kid became the guy standing up and telling everybody, everyone started believing in this kid. So so uh, that was the first song I ever wrote, and it's really because of Eric Lee, you know, because he, he encouraged me and did a lot of the heavy lifting himself, but he was so fucking great. And I was going, God, you know, that's what it was, you know. Eric Legion, Clifford, listen to the kid. I went, holy fuck. And that got me started. And then I, I, I realized, you know what? All you need is some time and, uh, and mess around with shit. And you can come up with things. You can create. You know, and he really gave that to me as a gift. Because before, I would, I'd be jamming. And yeah, I'd come up with bass parts and stuff like that. But I never realized what it was like to write a song. So that was great. And that's part of kind of what going to New York City and being part of this whole scene is it gave people, you know, you, you could create, you could do your own thing. And that, that's what the punk scene was about, you know. So as much as we were a little bit different than the other bands, we were the same in that way. And also, I remember Duncan Hannah looking at me because I, I was kind of, I mean, we're in the movie Blank Generation, which is actually a really poorly made movie about the punk rock scene. And it's all shot on Super 8, and there was no soundtrack, so they just put the sound in afterwards. But um, uh, you can see me, and I'm, what is it, Three Wolf 
I make all these weird, I mean, I was this kid who was like, my face would get bright red and I'd make all these bizarre faces. I had no idea. And Duncan Hannah goes, man, you are totally punk. (laughs) What? (laughs) Because I was just in my own world, you know, struggling to do it all, you know, and, uh, and not giving a shit what the fuck I look like, you know, um, man, especially like listening to the kid. I love what you said. Jimmy, I love what you said about time and, um, just, you know, screwing around and making stuff. Cause I have to say the piano music that you just, that you sent me is so gorgeous and you're using your COVID time so beautifully. That gift of that music is amazing. Thank you. Thank you. And I also want to ask you, when you, when you throw something out like that, you have to tell us where we can find where our all of our listeners can yeah, find Jimmy this. can you tell our listeners <laughs> our four listeners um, yeah. where people can get your <laughs> piano music? your music and then I want to circle yeah. to to when the wallet started because I want to figure out how did you why'd you leave New York why'd you come back I want to hear but first yeah. but, but first, first yeah ba- band camp or what yeah where okay. yeah band camp yeah you know okay so okay bandcamp.com and then you go there and uh, Jim Clip I'm shit out Jim Clifford, J-I-M-C-L-I-F-F-O-R-D, bandcamp.com. If you go there, you'll find it. There are five, no, there are four pieces that I, over the years, I composed, and I finally had a chance to, to record them. So I, I just posted those uh, about a month ago on Bandcamp. And you can go there and uh, listen to them. If you want to download them, great. You can pay whatever you want, which means zero or, you know, a million dollars. It's up to you. Um, really, it's just a chance for people to listen to music, for me anyway, to get it out there. Um, and, stuff. you know, you can download a nice, you know, lossless format, wave, you know, WAC, or MP3, which is fine, too. Um, so there it is, Bandcamp. And, I'll, you know, I know it was kind of fun. It was fun doing it. I had a friend that put some stuff on Bandcamp. I went, well, shit, I'll try it. So uh, it was great. I had one guy... It was where I just put the shit up there and sent a couple of notices to friends. And then a one guy who I don't even know paid like 12 bucks. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> but that's the only one I know ever That's I a cheap lunch. Yeah, but I'm rich. I'm <laughs> rich. <laughs> so, so then you're that in, makes you a pro again. You're in New York City. You spend seven years. You go through the arc of AIDS. You lose some friends. And it's you have some all those incredible experiences you were referencing, what, what made you leave? Uh, I didn't want to leave. I had a great living situation. I owned a, uh, I, I was sharing a co-op in Midtown Manhattan. Wow. $500. I mean, it was insane. We bought the building from the city. It's a long story. I won't get into it, but it was great living out there. I didn't want to come back here. Uh, the marbles lasted about four years. And then, uh, you know, we didn't, we didn't get signed, unfortunately. God damn it. We should have, because we're a really great band with great songs. And we have a few records out on Orc Records with Dead Lights is our, our big hit, you know, down the two Fox and CBGBs. And anyway, um, that ended about 1979. So I was, I didn't know really what to do, but I was out there. Um, Rob Dupre called and said, Hey, do you want to be an Iggy Pop fan? You know, we need a bass player. Um, I could have been an Iggy Pop fan, but I, I wasn't really, Rob Dupre loved Iggy Pop. It was his dream to be in the band. And there he was, the guitarist in Iggy Pop's band. It was great. But I didn't, 
I wasn't into the massive, at that point, drug usage. And Johnny Thunders wanted me to be in uh, in his band. He'd come on stage and he'd have, like, needles in his arms. Still. Oh, jeez. <laughs> you know, I mean... Uh, self-preservation, you know, although I got to hand it to it, you know, Iggy Pop, he's still around now because he took care of himself, ultimately. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. you know, you sort of try to sidestep the minefields, and I probably made bad decisions along the way, of course, everyone did, but hey, I'm still here. Uh, so anyway, 1980, I came home for my little sister's getting married, and uh, I went to the bridal dinner, and uh, her best friend, uh, Grove Flatabo, uh, Norwegian descent was the maid of honor, and I was. We were both all dressed up, you know, at the bridal dinner. And I said, you know what, my friend Steve Kramer is playing in this little club downtown called Seventh Street Entry, 1980. <laughs> and uh, he called me up and wants me to come down and see the band. So we were all dressed up, and we went down <laughs> to Seventh Street Entry in 1980. Walk in the door and. Uh, the wallets are on stage. Well, it wasn't even a stage. I mean, there's hardly any stage there. And I walk in, and here's Steve writhing on the floor <laughs> and spitting. You know, and I go, oh, God, there's Rod Gordon. You know, and, oh, there's Eric Anderson. I mean, I used to jam with these guys in high school. Um, I'm like, should I know these guys? They're like four or five guys in the band. I didn't know the sax player. Um, I knew the bass player Charlie Lawson because he went to my high school. Was it was the was Max playing the sax at that time? Yeah, Max was playing saxophone. So it was like Charlie Lawson, Eric Anderson, Rod Gordon, Steve, and uh, and Max. There might have been John Gordon might have been playing guitar. I can't remember if he was actually in the band at that point, but he may have been. So. Uh, but really, I, I didn't really know. I didn't know. John. And you guys so, all went uh, to high school so together. What was your high school again? Uh, well, I went to Blake. Yeah. He went to Blake. He was kicked out in 10th grade. Duncan also went to Blake. He was kicked out in 11th grade. Um, uh, <laughs> so that's how I, I kind of knew because, plus, actually, Steve, I knew. I went to, I grew up in Canada. So I went to Kenwood Elementary School. I knew Steve. They often knew Rod. Did you know Al Franken? Great. Yeah. I know Al and Tom, um, uh, the other guy. Now, did Duncan have Al a brother that, that, that lives here? No, Duncan has a sister. That's okay. It. So you walk into Seventh Street town. Entry. Oh yeah, okay. So I walk into Seventh, and these guys were like, "I was like, holy shit!" But I mean, I've played music my whole life during like the Steve Kramer stuff. So, uh, but still, I'm going, "What the fuck?" And of course, I'd been in New York City for the past five years as part of a punk scene, so I'd seen pretty much everything. But I hadn't seen anything like this. Like, what the <laughs> you had to come I'm to Minneapolis. <laughs> I mean, I'm just going, "What the fuck?" So they finished the set. He comes over to me, and here I am. You know, grows like six feet tall. This Norwegian woman. We're at Seventh Street Entry, which is like the old bathroom for the depot and all that fucking. And he comes over and goes, "Jim, God, it's so great you came down, man." I, I said, well, "He goes, will you be the bass player in our band?" I go, well, um, <laughs> Steve, I'd love to play with you, man, but I, I'm living out in New York. Well, we're going to come out to New York. We're moving out there. I said, well, just, you know, send me a tape, and, you know, I'm not in a band right now, so, sure, I'd love to be in your band. So that was in, like, March. Uh, come Christmas time, he sent, well, he sent me a bunch of tapes over the summer, and then they flew me home, which I was going to come home anyway, but they flew me home <laughs> for Christmas, and they had a gig at uh, Jay's Longhorn, like, you know, 
three-day gig at Phase Longhorn, and I'd learned some of the songs from the tapes, and the songs were, I mean, like Kojak. The bass line was two notes repeated for like 10 minutes straight. I mean, <laughs> for me, it was so incredibly hard to actually play a bass line like that. It was, it was almost insanely difficult. So, um, and the band is all about blues, and I mean, it was a whole education for me. But um, so I show up at a rehearsal, and there are 12 people in the band. Oh, like my God. Johnny Smoke was on guitar, and we practiced in this place in Northeast. It's gone now. It's where the Lone Barley's is. This little place with a football on top of it. I mean, just, uh, what the fuck is it? Uh, anyway, we were in a rehearsal studio upstairs. They have this shag carpeting. And so I did a couple rehearsals, and bingo, there I was at Jay's Longhorn. I did have the volume turned on on the bass guitar. But, um, <laughs> nice, nice circle. Uh, <laughs> nice. But it, but, 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 and it was, and we also had the wallet. You had like, uh, you know, two girl singers. I mean, it was a, it was a spectacular, and the band was kick ass. I mean, they were really good players. I mean, Hunt Gabble, I mean, they were all excellent players. And Eric Anderson, great drummer. So, um, Another yeah, Lifelines was, alum. Mm. Right. And it was, uh, it was mind boggling. And, uh, you know, I was still living out in New York. So they moved out to New York that January. Um, not everybody, but like John and Rod and Steve and Eric. Um, and this Hearn, Hearn came out there. He didn't move out there, but he did eventually. Anyway, uh, so we had sort of a slightly, pair, a much more pared down version in New York City, and they moved out there, and we got a little practice space, and we started playing in New York City um, for two years, from 80, well, 81 to 82, both of those years. We were like a house band at the Mud Club. We played, I mean, it was, it was amazing. It was, it was pretty incredible, um, those days in New York. I really liked it, but I'm incredibly naive, just like I was moving to New York in 1975. I mean, Anyway, so a lot, there's a huge thing going on in New York, and this is a crack cocaine that didn't come into like 82. AIDS was beginning to happen. A lot of shit was going down. It was, it was a sort of a changing of the guard in New York City. And uh, what happened was the reason we moved back to Minneapolis is that a lot of the guys, well, they all lived down the East Village. I was still in midtown Manhattan, and I'd ride my bike down the rehearsals and stuff. I'd hang out all the time with these guys, but I didn't realize that most of them were doing heroin. I yeah. had no clue. I mean, I'd go to rehearsal and there's this, you know, these grates in the sidewalk. You had to open up and go down the basement, this little like fallout shelter between, beneath a Russian bakery on 9th Street and 1st Avenue in the East Village. Oh my God. Um, that was a rehearsal space. And, and we'd be down there for hours. And I remember one time we're down there. And some fuckers padlocked it so we couldn't get out. So finally, you had you know, someone came with us, uh, you know, flip, um, you know, flippers, lock flippers, and got us out. And we had a big opportunity because we were courted by, I mean, we were really a great band, but we were not commercial at all. I mean, we'd do like a version of um, Caravan, you know, the Duke Ellington song, for like 20 minutes. And the first maybe five minutes, it was just saxophone. I started with it like maybe soprano sax, and then another saxophone would go in, and that would go for maybe five minutes of just uh, improvisation. And then it would come in super heavy with a bass line, 
boom, 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 boom. And then this massive, I mean, with congas and everything else. And it's just like this massive thing that went on for like 20 minutes. So it's not something that a normal record company would have any interest in. But people loved us. And uh, we did have some interest from a, a record company that was real conscious of the record company, uh, Tacoma Records. The president came to a rehearsal and it was looking like they were going to sign us, but they came to a rehearsal in our little basement studio, and I was totally unaware of it, but after the rehearsal, the president of Tacoma Records, who was an ex-junkie, said, fuck, all these guys are on heroin. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think John Gordon forgot to plug his guitar in. I mean, I don't even know, but uh, we didn't get that record deal, and that was, that was really sad because that would have been huge for us. And then Steve went really downhill. I remember him coming up to my apartment one day and he was all shaking, was raining outside. And I had, a, I had a piano that I had bought, bought that piano in my apartment. I said, Steve, will you play that piano piece for me? I really like it. And so he came over to the piano and he said, fucking do it. And his hands were shaking so bad, you know. He finally like begged me for 10 bucks. And left and going, oh my fucking God, what just happened? And then um, eventually, I mean, it got so bad that us guys in the band uh, realized that Steve had to go to treatment. So he came back to Minnesota to go, go to Hazleton. And uh, we ended up, this was in August in 1982. So we figured, okay, uh, let's all go back to Minneapolis for a month. And uh, you know, do a couple gigs there, and then we'll all move back to New York, because I saw my apartment, you know. But we came back to Minneapolis, and we ended up staying here in 1982. I had no idea I was going to be staying here pretty much for the rest of my life. 1982. But, uh, 1982, yeah. And then, and, but uh, then... Steve went treatment, and then we started playing... Yeah. Well, we were playing in Minneapolis already. They'd fly us in at Duffy's and Jay's Longhorn. It was a competition. Right. They'd pay us, they'd play our airplane fare. We'd come in on Republic Airlines, remember them? Yeah. Oh, yeah, Republic. And I mean, I had this huge, you know, upright base that Steve made this case for. We called it the Pinkle Tootsie because it came <laughs> with a bright pink. It made like 100. Uh, and all our equipment, and so like an 8C fan would be coming from New York, flying on Republic. You'd go, you'd land about 12 times. By the time you hit Minneapolis, my ears were like completely fucked up. Um, and then we'd play a gig for the weekend at Duffy's, and we'd fly back. This is the 81 and 82. We'd be coming back all the time. So when so in, we moved back here, yeah, what? Yeah, I'm just wondering, Jimmy, what? when you moved back here, did did everybody move at the mm-hmm. same time? Or did you all follow uh, Steve? Did Steve stay once he was clean? Yeah, yeah. you know, we moved back here because we figured we, we had a gig, I think, you know, to uh, at probably Duffy's. And so, you know, I, I came back here thinking I, I took a month off work, um, you know, figuring, you know, it'd be a month and then Steve would get cleaned up and we'd get back to New York. That was the plan. But, you know, to be honest with you, New York was changing a lot. Uh, when I moved back to Minneapolis just for that month, I was going, God, it's so nice to walk down the street. And I mean, I, so the person was walking the other way down the sidewalk towards me. I remember I was living in Canada, kind of near where you live. Yeah. yeah. Actually, very close to where you live. And 
in New York, you walk down the street, you don't look at anybody, you look at the floor, you look at anything else, you look at the person coming at you. And this person said hello, and I like jumped like three feet in the air. I couldn't fucking believe it. And uh, uh, kept walking. And then I finally realized, you know what, this is what normal life is like. And I just all of a sudden went, you know what, I think I'm, I'm okay staying here for a while. And as it turned out, Steve got through treatment. He didn't want to go back to New York. He realized that would not work for him. And we were all pretty much here. So we just kept staying here and playing gigs. And I sublet my place out in uh, Manhattan, which I could continue to do to like 1986. Wow. made me sell my share. Um, and so that's how we ended up being here. And then we followed that trail for the entire decade of the 80s, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah when, when did you New break up? City, when did the wallets break? Uh, 89 was our last gig at the Guthrie. Because I, I think so, I started seeing you guys like in 85, 86, something like that. Uh, do you remember where you saw us? You know, I don't. I I I, I don't remember. I want to say like bunkers, but that just doesn't sound right. Like the, it, you guys played the caboose. No, we, we, we did. We played everywhere. We played yeah. Everywhere. We did yeah. We played a lot of outdoor gigs in the summer. I mean, everywhere, every street. Lor- every yeah, summer. Loring Park. We played, uh, we played the U of Weed M. Festival. We, yeah, Loring Park. We played every club from Goofy's. Yeah, because <laughs> I, uh, I know, went. I mean, you, you name it, we were there. Uh, college gigs, Augsburg. Oh yeah, I went. I, I saw you guys at Augsburg, Augsburg once. Uh, and and the ambulance and the theatricality. I mean, the shows at First Avenue. You guys were oh, so epic, yeah. and uh, you know, a whole generation of people grew up. It was a great on dance you. band. It was a really Amazing. great dance band. Yeah, and and the fact that you all survived that New York experience, and you know, came back and stayed an intact band, got healthy. I mean, you know, Rod was my daughter's math teacher. At Sanford and you know I mean everybody w- came back you know well, what I, I mean I don't think I realized that when I started seeing you guys that you'd already been around for a really long time I mean I was just sort of waking up post high school I'm a sure. lot younger than Kristen and Dave oh. and so, <laughs> so uh and and I I got hip to the band because my high school music teacher was Paul Scher who was friends with Max Ray and so yeah, he played with us, Paul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then I, I came and watched you guys, you know, sort of got interested in you because of that. And it was kind of my first time, you know, being like grown up like and being in a club and watching a real band where I knew some of the guys. And it was it was pretty great. I mean, it was uh, I mean, I, I have very fond memories of the, the few shows that I saw. What year did cool. you come back, Jimmy? And then I just on a personal level, I got to uh-huh. know when you and Carol Lee were were what year was that? Carol Lee is uh, Christian's oh. sister, by the way. For I'm just trying listeners. to figure out. And she has uh, four sisters. Kristen has like a, a yeah, we don't have to talk about my sister. We, we don't have to the talk about my sister. Crable sisters. Okay. You okay. gotta love them. Sorry, I brought and, it up. And, but you but can't I mention am... them without mentioning their mom, Jenny oh. Frable. Oh, Jenny Frable, he died in realty. Oh, Jimmy. Uh, he died in realty and uh, Jeepers <laughs> Creepers. They get them Jeepers. Uh, she's yeah. awesome. So, yeah. I love the Frables, and Carol Lee is spectacular. Now, that was 1989, 89. and that was uh, um, when I started working at Lifeline. 
Ah, okay. There we go. Yeah, it all comes back to lifelines eventually. (laughs) You know, doesn't it all? And, you know, with Barb Cohen and Trax. Oh, uh, Trax, that's right. And David Wolf. And I still see David Wolf fairly often, although I haven't seen him. Uh, I love all those names. So let's let's get a quick one-line description and slash history of lifelines for the listeners at home and perhaps uh, good Paul Ryan. <laughs> yeah, Paul Paul is still here. He's a troop, trooper. Um, oh God, I wish I could. Okay. Um, yeah. So we uh, all know, worked at Lifelines. Lifelines was the absolute craziest place. You know, nurse nursing staffing uh, organization. So for instance. If a nursing home didn't have enough nurses for their shift, they would call uh, for temporary staffing from lifelines. And so they hired me because well, I went to a coffee shop, uh, Sebastian Joe's coffee shop one day, and there was David Wolf and JB, and they knew me from the wallet. They recognized me. Hey, do you need a job? And I go, well, <laughs> no, actually, I could kind of use a job. Hey, just Sunday nights, come on in. And, uh, um, all you got to do is talk to nurses. You'd be perfect. You've got a low voice, and uh, the ladies are going to love you. I go, well, okay. So I, I went in, and they it was, they paid really good money, and you're sitting at a phone bank. Remember Dan? Oh, oh yeah. God. So, oh, wow. yeah, Dan. Dan the man. Um, Just a stone, stony stone face. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was like Gibraltar. He was very funny he though. Was so he, calm and collected. Yeah. How long? Meanwhile, did... the the owner, um, uh, Frank's brother. Thank you, Dave. My God, he's. I think he he's still in prison. Too much. Yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know. Of thanks, course. Frank, for the all the opportunity. But anyway, JB and and David, well, these people and David, they, these people were completely crazy, and they were. Totally into scatological humor. That's all they were into is farting <laughs> and fart jokes. And they call up just random numbers on the speakerphone. They were amazing. And they'd start asking. It sounded like at the beginning like a, a normal conversation where they're taking a survey. And then within like 30 seconds, they're farting into the phone and making all these crazy reference. People on the other end of the phone had no idea what was going on. And then, like, J.B., <laughs> with this crazy laugh, you know. I mean, it was, and, and this was our work environment. I, I mean, it was absolutely not, it was really fun. Oh, um, remember God. the board? They had the board with all the shifts you had to fill. Yeah. And, uh, so it was just one night a week, Sunday night. Like, so I was still on the wall. We'd do our, you know, go to Fargo and play Friday and Saturday. And then I'd show up at Lifelines on Sunday night. Oh, <laughs> my Sunday God. night shift. And, uh, you know, um decompressed basically with these guys it was great it was fantastic and like i said they actually paid us money for fuck's sake it was great (laughs) and how long did the lifelines era last sort of collectively well i can't speak for for me it's probably like i think it was probably a year and a half maybe i worked there no longer than that and then I went back to school. I had to, I was like a full time student, get my teaching certificate at the U. So. But that's, I, I, that, I met you um, with, at school at, at the U of M. We uh-huh. had a class together. And um, and you got me the li- uh, job at Lifelines. Um, so oh. that, it, it must have overlapped with, with your yes, schooling. Yes, it did. Because that's when I started at the U. That's right. Because at the end of 89, that's when I realized. I mean, the wallets were ending at the beginning of 89. I knew I had to. I was already. Actually, I started right then. I started, I think, 
shit, I think it was late at 89 when the Wilds ended, I was already signed up for the year. So I started in, in January, actually, after you. So I worked at Lifeline probably 88, I started at Lifeline. And then probably through part of 89, and then I had to quit because the school, it was, I think, 64 credits. In the wow. Internet. And it was insane. So um, I couldn't work there anymore. But, you know, for a year, whatever it was, a year and a little bit more, it was great. I mean, I, I met a bunch of fantastic people and Kirk Carley. And, um, <laughs> we had a good time. Kern. Kern. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, was, it, was, it, was, it was utterly amazing. Chaos. And, you know, it's good. <laughs> chaos. I mean, <laughs> yeah, Lifeline. Parks and Rec has yeah. nothing on Lifelines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was. I can't wait to see the movie. Oh, my God, yes. Um, but, <laughs> <I don't> he, <laughs> but, but, Jimmy, your musical life, I mean, you and Dave are in a fantastic band how did that evolve that's true <laughs> well that evolved from meeting dave at the u i mean actually uh the way i met dave we were in this uh um, class um linguistics class, really yeah linguistics with the teacher looked just like william hurt he was yeah, when he was, was handsome and had hair um he was really handsome he was very smart and it was a big lecture class like 400 people you know mm. and in the front row right in front of him was goofy like he's Really cute, smart girls <laughs> right in the front row staring off at him. And it was one of those huge classes in linguistics. is a very fascinating subject about how thoughts are formed and speech. And, and uh, so it was kind of tricky. So there were study groups for the exam. And so I went, I was assigned to a certain study group. So I showed up and was in a small room with a TA doing it. And uh, there was this cute girl that was always right in the front row. And I said, okay. And there was a seat right next to it. So I, I grabbed the seat because I'm going to sit in it. And then at the same time, there was someone else grabbing the same seat. And I looked up. <laughs> and it was Dave Chappelle. I didn't know Dave at the time. But sure we got this little tussle over the seat. <laughs> Makes perfect <laughs> it was sort of sense. Aw, shucks. An aw, shucks moment. And uh, I think we just like pulled up two seats and we're you know, you know, cornering this poor woman. But eventually she faded into the background as we were waiting for the bus uh, to leave. We just started talking. Yeah, and that's right. Yeah, there's other music too. And I he goes, yeah, I'm playing with these, jamming with these guys all the time. And, and one thing led to the next. We became good friends. Started jamming with, uh, everyone's name was Dave or Tom. Was really yeah, nice. yeah. Tom Schroeder, <laughs> Dave Hare. Dave, yeah, right, right. Dave Capel, Tom Hamilton, and the yeah, that's right. I mean, that was that was spectacular because these guys were all into writing. I mean, big time into writing. These guys are all excellent writers, and so they'd have these like they get together and decide a theme to write about, and they all go home and write about shit. And then you show up a week later and read what you wrote, and you know people would. And take that into consideration, and, and then all of a sudden, these sort of they'd get these musical projects that would grow up out of these writing sessions. So uh, I eventually sort of wormed my way in, and uh, the first one I was involved in was, I guess, the Dakota Arms. Yeah, and Dakota Arms. Falling, falling. Yeah, God. That we, yeah, the, these things we always ended. We tried to record them, and we did a pretty darn good job. Actually. On a four on four tracks, uh, yeah. But, but we never, no one ever wanted to play live, which is good and bad. You know, cause you don't have to, playing live is a, is a whole other level of dealing with shit. That's for sure. Yeah. But um, so that was kind of nice. We were freed up from any of that crap, and then it was just uh, 
you know, getting together and rehearsing, which everyone loves to do, and playing music. And, and all these guys are great. I mean, they're really, really good musicians. I mean, downstanding. Yeah, so Jay, Jay Orff was in cool that fun. project, too. Yeah, Jay Orff, yep, yep. And, uh, and that was the whole yeah. thing that started up Magnetic Poetry, too, was that the, those writing sessions, I... Uh, we would we would do little writings on say the word tree or something like that you know and and each of yep. us would write me, our memories or whatever whatever uh, that word sparked in our heads and we'd bring it back and we'd read read each other's writings to each other and one day I just I took a writing that Jay wrote um, and cut it up uh, into pieces and uh, that was the first magnetic poetry kit that's awesome. Um, I, That's so I wound great. up sticking it to magnets and sticking it to a cookie sheet. So that, yeah. And that the was, rest is history. Yes. Yes, it all, it's all intertwined. What a, so beautiful. It's all intertwined. Fantastic. It's certainly, a, no, it's just insane. It is a great shit. Because this is, you know, this is what happens when people, sorry about not being able to show up today, but it, like I said, showing up is everything. Yeah. We were there together. We were doing something. Now, I mean, people have to do it in a different way. I'm That's going. Right. You know, 2020, I can't imagine if I was 20 in 2020. Because okay? yeah. I, I was able to go off to New York City in this incredible environment. I mean, Jesus. I mean, I was hanging out with Jackie O, for fuck's sake, was right now. I mean, I, I, I brushed elbows and talked with so many phenomenal human beings. That I'd go to a bar like the Astro Cafe. Howard and I would go there. And this place was so cool. They would, the bartender would keep the beer at 34 degrees. He had a little thermometer on it. We'd go in there and we'd drink like ice cold Heineken and then black Russians. That was how his favorite drink. We'd sit at this beautiful bar, you know, all wood paneled and stuff. And you'd look over and there would be like these blue eyes that you just couldn't even fathom how they were so electric. And it's Paul Newman. You know, what the fuck? <laughs> I mean, this guy is just like, Jesus. Uh, no, everyone, I mean, Lauren, I worked at Bloomingdale's. I, I sold the Diane Keaton six pairs of Annie Hall sunglasses. I, you know, Lauren Hutton, I, 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 she was, one day, I, everyone came to Bloomingdale's to meet. It was a very, really hot place right on 3rd Avenue and 50th Street, 59th Street. And I was in the men's jewelry and sunglasses department at one point. And I was right on it. As you walked in the door, there it was, this big... Uh, triangular shaped counter quite big on the corner and a lot of people would meet people at the edge of that counter and I look down and I see this woman and I said, she looks so I walk over and she smiles and there's like this you know inch gap between her front teeth and I'm like god that's Lauren Hutton and uh, she was just, I mean Greta fucking Greta Garbo I saw Greta Garbo I mean you gotta be kidding she was I get the word Greta Garbo's in men's socks. <laughs> so, so, so I'm, I'm running over, and I mean, uh, I'm looking all over the place. I'm in men's socks. And uh, all of a sudden, I see this woman. She's dressed in like a camel hair pants, like just flat, like slipper-like shoes. A simple, maybe, you know, beige, probably cashmere sweater or something gray hair pulled back, just looks like a little old Scandinavian lady, like my grandmother or something. And there she is, oh my fucking God, that's Greta Garbo. It was Greta Garbo. I mean, it was, things like the Vincent Price. Oh, 
I, I taught James Taylor how to tie a bow tie. Oh. <laughs> I sold Alan King cufflinks for his nephew. Give me the cheapest ones you got. You know, it was like, <laughs> oh, there, it was, <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was, it was uh, amazing. Tommy Tune, endless, endless shit. And you're like, uh, it, the uh, thing is, being able like to Forrest show up, Gump. being able to mix. Yeah, I mean, you've got to be able to get out and do stuff. I, I feel terrible I'm stuck here talking to you, but at least we're on the phone. It's not too bad. You know what? But, it's um, You showed up, and I'm really grateful because we didn't think you were going to come, but here we go. The magic of ad- adaptability in yeah, the time right, of COVID. Right, here. <laughs> right? Yeah, and this it's great, appropriate uh, for the great times. to finally meet you, albeit virtually. Yeah. One yep. day, can you imagine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, I mean, I can't even imagine. Jim, so Jim and I are both uh, salsa dancers. Jim, can you imagine now what it was like to just be dancing with stra- close with strangers like <laughs> six months ago? It's just, it's, it's almost creepy to think about now. Like we used to go to these clubs and just, you know, like ask, you know, strangers stand and you're in, in salsa yeah. dancing, you're very close and you're breathing in each other's faces and stuff. Is that ever going to happen again? It's just the craziest well, maybe thing. Maybe two years, three years, maybe. Two years. <laughs> yeah, two years. I mean, yeah, no, they've got to get a vaccine. It's got to go away. It's going to take, we're, you know, everyone says we're in the first, we're still in the middle of the first. Osterholm phase. says we're in the third in- inning. We just went from the second to the third inning. Oh, really? Yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. The first, <laughs> the first game in the series. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Jimmy, Jimmy, are you are you social distance visiting with anyone? How's Silmara, your beautiful wife? How, how no, are you, What's your life like? What you- uh, my life is well. You know, actually, my life is is fine. You know, it's my life is great. Uh, so Mara stays home. She doesn't work. She's not going in. She works at Long Island, so she's on a leave of absence, and that's great. Not, um, I get out and I walk every day. I get up and I walk for about probably an hour and a half outside. I, I'm having kind of a little physical problem right now. My, you know, three years ago, I had back surgery. Yeah, we had the board. same surgeon. Uh, Dr. Bergman. Yep, yeah. Dr. Bergman. Well, it, it's back. I mean, oh, oh no. Is a problem. My, I, my hand is moving, but it's just, it's the, uh, um, it's a herniated disc. It's the same fucking disc. And so oh, that I, sucks. I'll be going to my uh, guy. Actually, I have to leave pretty soon. Uh, i got to get down there at noon. But um, uh, I'm, of course, I'm fucking scared out of my mind. I, to go through that surgery again, I, I would, actually, they couldn't do the same surgery. It would have to be through my front. Oh, honey. Through the front of my neck, they'd have to fuse the vertebrae, and I'd probably lose my voice. I mean, it's really disgusting. So, I, uh, anyway, I'm okay. My, choreo- my choreographer, my chiropractor <laughs> uh, has been through the same surgery I've been through. He's been through all. He's fantastic. He's one of the top guys in the state. I love this guy. He goes, if ever there's a problem, call me. So I did. He goes, you know, Jim, the same thing happened to me. You know, that's recurrence. And this is what we got to do. So I, the, I mean, so I, I can't play any music now. I, I'm, I can't really even sit down. They said bring a chair to sit down. I go, I can't really even do that. Um, so I could stand up and keep walking. You know, yeah. It's all about, you know, your posture and keeping the pressure off your vertebrae. And yeah. Uh, anyway, but it, it's, I think it's going to be okay. Actually, this guy, I've had, it's been about 10 days now, and the pain's there, but my hand still works. And I think they say most of the time these things can heal themselves. It couldn't before. I mean, the nerve damage was done. But uh, I'm thinking, and according to my car, 
chiropractor and even Bergman, uh, most of the time these things will, will resolve themselves. I just have to <sighs> be super careful not yeah. to aggravate it. So that's, yeah. a, that's what my main thing is now. But other than that, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I was like a pig in shit. I was loving staying home and just playing music. And I've worked, I've got, uh, man, I've got like some songs that I really like. And, uh, and awesome. they're done. And so I'll Good. probably post those pretty soon. Good. I did post, uh, you know, um, on YouTube, I have, I posted one about the Schooner Cabin. Schooner Jiggle Dave. I think I was going to post If you go look at that, you can on uh, YouTube yeah, with a video with a video of the schooner. Oh, that. good! Yay! Nice. So I'll Wait. check that out. Yay! Schooner Gigolo, Jim Clifford. Or no, just Schooner Gigolo. You'll find it. Schooner Gigolo. Awesome. Well, hey Jim, um, um, you need to get to the yeah, dock, and uh, yeah, I do. This has gone way over. Yeah, way no, over. it's I hope great. I'm paid double for this. It's <laughs> it's so great. Double the love. The union will be in touch with you. I'm so glad that we got. <laughs> Yeah, that we got to the talk. The Teamsters, baby. <laughs> the Teamsters. Oh, oh Jimmy. Well, to be continued, I yeah. like it. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. guys are great. I, I, uh, you know what? And no, how is, is it raining out there? Just a little. Sprinkling, but we're under the trees in beautiful Seven Pools Park. Yeah, yeah. Seven Pools Yeah. Oh, God. Well, what a joy. A total pleasure. And uh, originally, I was I was going to play some mu- some of these some music from some of these bands and some of this shit just a little bit to give your listeners a, a little uh, uh, spice and flavor. But, we can uh, do a part two maybe some other time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We can, we can do a two. part yeah, two because I mean, there's uh, I mean, we did, to be honest with you, and maybe good. and maybe next time Paul yeah, can Paul join on. us. Yeah, we'll yeah, get Paul. Paul on. Yeah. yeah. He's been here patiently well, just listening as a, our, our first and only audience member of our uh, our studio audience. Um, live, so, live audience member. Well, yeah. I mean, kudos. Is there any way you could do this like through Zoom or anything and just record it off of that? Yeah, uh, yeah I'm sure we, we could. We could do that. We probably I mean, could. Yeah, because that, that would be super easy. Weather doesn't matter. Oh, I mean, I think that might be my... I'm getting another call here. I've been. Uh... Yeah. Are you still there, Jim? No. Are, are you? Can you hear me? Talking internationally. Uh, I guess Jim's gone, but. Uh, well, that's that's, that's a good that time was. to uh, say say uh, goodbye. Good to see you, Paul. Thanks, good Paul, to see you, for uh, uh, Thanks, Paul. Pablo Jimmy, and Christian. Jimmy, we love you. Love he's, you so much. Yeah. Swinging over. I Jimmy. think he's gone, but he'll oh, he'll no, probably listen to this back. No, he's gone. Is he? Yeah, he's gone. Hello, that was him Jimmy. going. Strange. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> well, we'll see you next <laughs> all right. time. All right. All right. See you I'm next time. Love you all. Love you all. All right, XOXO. Love you. Bye. Bye.